0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Dreams of Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 7th, 2011. In his book, Dreaming, from the year 2002... J. Allen Hobson of Harvard Medical School contrasts two main ways that people have interpreted dreams. In the Freudian tradition, a dream is precisely not what the dreamer experiences it to be. Instead, it's an encoded, hidden, and mysterious message that must be decoded by a specialist, for a price, of course. In this view, dreams are unconscious or repressed desires that bubble up when the ego is asleep. Hobson dismisses this psychoanalytic model as what he calls scientifically naive, a hopeless fantasy. He admits that he wants to quote, discredit Freud emphatically. Instead of identifying content analysis as the holy grail of dream theory, he proffers what he calls a formal analysis of dreams. In his view, dream content varies from person to person, but the formal properties of dreams are virtually identical in everyone. Dreams have emotional salience, perceptual or visual vividness, bizarre logic, and difficulty in recall. In Hobson's reductionistic view, the rational mind and the physical brain are one and the same thing. Our minds are what he calls functional states of our brain. Dreaming, then, is nothing more than the spontaneous and involuntary activation of the mind-brain during sleep. Exactly why the brain self-activates just so, we don't know nor can we be sure about any purpose of such neurological functions, if there are any. A third way to interpret dreams is to understand them as a means of divine communication. I myself would never claim that God was speaking to me through my dreams, especially given both their content and their form. I like the advice of the early desert monastics, who even in their pre-scientific age were suspicious of dreams. Nonetheless, throughout history, many people have discerned divine messages in their dreams. When I read Anthony Everett's biography, Hadrian and the Triumph of Rome, 2009, I was surprised at how deeply superstitious Hadrian was about dreams, religion, magic, astrology, and Greek initiation rites. And dreams, of course, feature prominently throughout the Bible. Matthew's birth narrative of Jesus, to take just one prominent example, revolves around five dreams. The story of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50 begins when he was 17 and ends with his death in Egypt at the age of 110. That's 93 long years exiled from his family and country. The story features three sets of two dreams, all six of which are construed as divine messages. Joseph had two dreams as a teenager, one about sheaves of grain and another about the stars of the sky. Both of them foretold that he would rule over his older brothers. The next four dreams feature Joseph as the interpreter of dreams. Although he insists that it's not him but God who gives the interpretation, he deciphers a good dream by the cupbearer and a very bad dream by the baker. And then Pharaoh's two dreams about future years of feast and famine. These six dreams turn Joseph's life into something of a nightmare. Some of the deepest hurts that we experience come from our own families, often through no fault of our own. Such was the case with Joseph. His brothers resented their father's favoritism, epitomized in his coat of many colors that privileged him above them. And so they sold Joseph to Midianite merchants, who in turn sold him to an Egyptian official named Potiphar, This began 13 years of slavery and imprisonment for Joseph. He was later tempted and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Languishing in prison for crimes he didn't commit, he was forgotten by the cupbearer who had gained his own freedom thanks to Joseph. As As history unfolded, though, roles were reversed, Joseph's brothers and families were demoted to beggars in a famine, whereas he was elevated to Pharaoh's second-in-command. When their fratricide was exposed, the brothers fully expected retaliation. But in contrast to his brothers who tried to kill him out of jealousy, Joseph forgave his brothers out of a sense of God's providence. It's no wonder that this week's Psalm 105 honors Joseph. Joseph believed that God had a providential purpose in the private wrongs that he had suffered. In other words, to preserve a remnant that would fulfill the promise to Abraham. Don't be afraid, assured Joseph to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Genesis 50, verse 20 And then, at least four different times, Joseph reassures his nervous brothers that, quote, it was not you who sent me to Egypt, but God. It's an astounding and radical idea that nothing that I experience happens without divine design and permission. In the words of the song, Like a River Glorious, by Francis Ridley Havergal, Every joy or sorrow falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. The Joseph story shows how God uses our worst sins, sufferings, and failures in redemptive ways. Many Christians have observed how God brings good out of evil. St. Augustine wrote, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to allow no evil to exist. The contemporary Frederick Buechner writes, "Sin itself can be a means of grace." Back in the 14th century, Julian of Norwich once said that sin will be no shame, but an honor. Anthony de Mello writes that repentance reaches its fullness when you are brought to gratitude for your sins. And finally, Thomas Aquinas gave us the startling phrase, O Felix Culpa, in reference to the fall of Adam. O fortunate crime. In other words, the fall of Adam, with all its catastrophic consequences, triggered something far better and far greater. The incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is risky business. There's a thin and mysterious line between honoring God's providence and calling evil good. We should also be wary of enabling or excusing bad family behaviors instead of correcting them. Nor should we ever turn a blind eye to injustice as if it didn't matter. Nevertheless, Joseph moves beyond these legitimate concerns and discerns a larger purpose of good in the evil he suffered. Perhaps this is something that one can claim for yourself, but should never presume for another. I like how the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann acknowledges the evil in the world, but also has faith in God's greater providence. Consider his poem by the title, Dreams and Nightmares. It's from his book, Prayers for a Privileged People, 2008. Last night as I lay sleeping, I had a dream so fair. I dreamed of the holy city, well-ordered and just. I dreamed of a garden of paradise, well-being all around and a good water supply. I dreamed of disarmament and forgiveness and caring embrace for those in need. I dreamed of a coming time when death is no more. Last night, as I lay sleeping, I had a nightmare of sins unforgiven. I had a nightmare of landmines still exploding and maimed children. I had a nightmare of the poor left unloved, of the homeless left unnoticed, of the dead left ungrieved. I had a nightmare of quarrels and rages and wars, great and small. When I awoke, I found you still to be God, presiding over the day and night with serene sovereignty, for dark and light are both alike to you. At the break of day, we submit to you our best dreams and our worst nightmares asking that your healing mercy should override threats, that your goodness will make our nightmares less toxic and our dreams more real. Thank you for visiting us with newness that overrides what is old and deathly among us. Come among us this day. Dream us toward health and peace. We pray in the real name of Jesus, who exposes our fantasies For books this week I reviewed Jonathan Wright Heretics The Creation of Christianity from the Gnostics to the Modern Church New York Houghton Mifflin Harcourt 2011 338 pages Back in grad school, I remember reading Karl Barth described Schleiermacher's theology as what he called a heresy of gigantic proportions. But Barth said he also expected to meet Schleiermacher in heaven. Did theological belief not have any bearing on one's eternal destiny? That's only one example of many interesting questions provoked by the fascinating interplay between orthodoxy, whatever that is, and heresy, whatever that is. Jonathan Wright has authored a remarkably readable book about a technical subject that's intended for a general audience. The history of heresy is complicated. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between hero and villain, and as times changed, so did the epithets. Today, for example, Quakers enjoy a good reputation, but in the 17th century they were persecuted as socially disruptive radicals who refused to take oaths, pay taxes, or serve in the military. Many people posit a uniformly orthodox golden age when a core Christianity was believed Everywhere, always, by all. But Wright shows how problematic that concept is. Much of the history of heresy has to do with the tangled relationship between church and state. And then there's the problem of viewing ancient history through our modern prism of religious pluralism and political toleration. This book, says Wright, is neither an apology for orthodoxy nor a rallying cry for the virtues of heresy. Rather, it is an examination of the Christian muddle. Wright proceeds chronologically, beginning with the early church and ending with the American experiment. Yes, there are plenty of gruesome stories of people burned at the stake, especially from the medieval period onward, when the state sponsored executions of heretics. Heretics were not only a theological or spiritual problem, they disrupted the political, social, and economic fabric of society. Some heretics, like Abelard or Voltaire, came from the intellectual elite, while others were lay people. What Wright calls the greatest heretical event of all was the Protestant Reformation, for it questioned more or less every aspect of traditional Christian practice and devotion by elevating individual conscience above any external authority. As the Thirty Years' War showed, it took very little time indeed for the persecuted to become the new persecutors. Wright aims for genuine sympathy and objectivity. He's especially sensitive about interpreting the past in light of the present. He teases out nuances like the differences between toleration as a pragmatic strategy to preserve the social order and a principled concept of freedom of conscience as a human right. He acknowledges our own bigotries today and observes that the 20th century was the bloodiest one in human history one could easily write a similar book about Islam, Judaism, or any other religion. Given the challenges of finite minds grasping the infinite God, it's comforting to remember that justification by faith covers not only our moral shortcomings, but also our intellectual ones. Jonathan Wright, Heretics, the creation of Christianity from the Gnostics to the modern church. For film this week, I review The Tree of Life. Terrence Malick, a Harvard graduate and Rhodes scholar who has taught philosophy at MIT, has made five films in roughly 40 years. The Tree of Life, from 2011, his first film, since 2005, won the Golden Palm Award for Best Picture at the Cannes Film Festival for its distinctly religious exploration of our human place in a cosmos that is equally beautiful and terrifying. The film is set in Waco, Texas, where Malik was born, in the 1950s, and centers around a single family. The O'Briens, played by Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain, are a young couple with three boys who experience what we confess every Sunday in the liturgy, the gift of life with all its joys and sorrows. Malik follows the oldest son, Jack, through youthful innocence, adolescent awakening, and then to adult reflection on his place in the world, especially given his ambivalent relationship with his father. The film opens with a quotation from Job 38, verse 4, and the observation that one can live by nature or by grace. It ends with a prayer, help us, guide us till the end of time. And then, after a long pause, a response, follow me. The title of the film, The Tree of Life, from 2011. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by William Stafford. The title is The Way It Is. William Stafford lived from 1914 to 1993. In 1975, he was named Poet Laureate of Oregon. And in 1970, he was appointed Poet Laureate of the United States. William Stafford, The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. And you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. William Stafford, The Way It Is Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 7th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.